these last two verses together. See, he says, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you that you shall see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, Jerusalem, of course, is um, always in the news and uh, always will be in the news. The reasons for that we'll see in a moment. But just to emphasize what I said before the reading, we'll be referring quite a bit to Zechariah's prophecy. Please remember always that when Zechariah prophesies, he does so as someone who has returned uh, from the exile. And whenever he speaks of God's people being dispersed again and regathered, he is not speaking of something in the past, something in the then present, but very much something in the future. A wider dispersion into many nations from which the Jewish people will again be regathered and will eventually experience a God's blessing and renewal upon them as a people and as a nation. And Zechariah sees these uh, surrounding nations rising up against her. But you'll notice that in our reading, uh, we'll discover that the nations find Jerusalem to be difficult. Uh, She is a cup of drunkenness or staggering to the nations who try to deal with her. They are sometimes enraged and confused. She is also a very heavy stone, Zechariah says, that when people try and pick her up, the stone ends up falling upon themselves in judgment. And Zechariah is not the only prophet who effectively tells us and tells everyone to be very careful not to be against her and to make sure that they are for her well-being. That, of course, does not mean that you can never criticize Jerusalem or Israel to which she belongs. After all, the fiercest critics of the ancient Jerusalem were the prophets themselves. But nonetheless, we must be careful never to be against her and always to be for her well-being. And what's more, Zechariah tells us that people will be judged on the basis of how they deal with with her. Now Zechariah tells us that once the nations do rise up against her, which they will, and it's not difficult for us in our day to see perhaps even when that happens, but certainly to see how it will happen. We already are well aware of the religious and political tensions that will create that, but he says when the nations rise against her, God will ensure that they are defeated. Because all who will try to heave away this stone will be cut in pieces, even though all the nations of the earth are gathered against her. God will strike every horse and rider with madness. Now, the the images, of course, are drawn from the current day. That doesn't mean that the weapons of warfare will be exactly the same. I'll open my eyes on the house of Judah. In other words, I'll be attentive for her well-being and her protection, and I will strike the horse of the peoples with blindness. And the destruction that comes on the people is a very vivid one. 
We're told astonishingly that the plague with which the Lord will strike the nations is one that involves their flesh dissolving while they stand on their feet, their eyes dissolving in their sockets, and their tongues dissolving in their mouths. And even though those who fight against her have all the gold and the silver in great abundance, that same destructive plague will be on the horses and the mules and the camels and the donkeys. So shall this plague be. Then amazingly he says that those who are left of the nations will actually turn round in her favour and go up to worship in Jerusalem from year to year. An astonishing thing. I mean, I, I can't help but wonder, and this is just um, putting this out there, you, you wonder if an image like the flesh dissolving while they stand on their feet and eyes dissolving in their sockets and tongues dissolving in their mouths, is that a reference to some kind of nuclear destruction or something like that? It's impossible to say, to be sure. I mean, some people were pronounced with dogmatism and things like that, but one thing sure, it is an extraordinarily vivid image of the way in which God strikes the nations that seek to destroy Jerusalem. But the result of all these assaults is that God's city remains. And she remains and remains blessed. She remains blessed because God says that Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even Jerusalem. Exactly where she always has been, she always will be. Now, the reason for all this, the reason that it's so difficult to shake Jerusalem, so difficult to destroy her, the reason that there's so much hostility against her, which is engineered by the evil one, but the reason that these things don't prevail is just because it is actually God's plan and purpose to save the city. And to save the city, not just in terms of uh, material salvation or military uh, deliverance or uh, anything of that kind at all. The, the real salvation that God is going to bring to the city is a spiritual salvation, so that his sanctuary will be restored in the place. Not the old kind of temple, uh, but a church, the house of God, will be re-established in Jerusalem. The worship of God and David at last acknowledged as the king. Now, this isn't a reference, of course, to the David who had been dead for hundreds of years when Zechariah was speaking. When Zechariah and Ezekiel speak of a, a David that Israel will look to and acknowledge, that is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. David is one of his names because David means beloved and the Messiah is beloved. And the sanctuary, the church that God establishes in Jerusalem will be a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And only when these things happen will Jerusalem at last be a city of peace. I mean, right now you'll be as aware as I am that if ever a city was misnamed, it's that one. Her name means city of peace, and I don't know, is, is there a city in the world that is as battered and bloodied as Jerusalem? Is there a city that knows so much war and strife and perplexity and confusion and bloodshed year after year after year? 
It's amazing that it stands. It's amazing anyone lives there. But it's called the city of peace. The first time we meet it is in the book of Genesis, when it was simply called Salem, peace. And its king was a mysterious man called Melchizedek, whose name means king of righteousness. Abraham met him and um, gave him tithes, recognized him to be an extraordinary figure. I mean, I intend soon, God willing, to preach at the prayer meeting on on Melchizedek, uh, Lord willing. But he was king of righteousness and king of the city of peace. And we can fast forward to a day, maybe it's not far away, when the city at last again will be the city of peace. And it's the king of righteousness who will rule over it. The greater than Melchizedek, the priest who sits on his throne, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it's this future salvation of the city that the Lord Jesus Christ speaks of in our text here. And our text is really a a double prophecy. It's a double prophecy in the sense that it just prophesies, prophesies on the one hand an imminent judgment that is going to fall upon the city of Jerusalem. Christ prophesies it. He prophesies it in his day. And he describes that judgment as imminent because he says in verse 36, all these things, that's the wrath of God as we'll see in a moment, all these things will come upon this generation. By that, As we'll see in a minute, he literally means this generation that is living right now. That's in his day. These things will be poured out on the city. So he is prophesying on the one hand an imminent judgment. How fearful that must have been to the people who heard it. At least if they had any sense. Which sadly too few did. Just Just like we can sit under announcements of God's judgment and carry on life as though it just wasn't going to happen at all. But on the other hand, he prophesies future mercy for the city on a generation yet to come. Because he says, you won't see me again, he says to the city, until you say, and until you learn to say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. An imminent judgment and future mercy. I want to look at both these with you with God's help. First of all, the imminent judgment, which was going to come, as I said, or as Christ says, on this generation. What was the judgment? Well, if you just go back um, to verse 34 again. Christ says that he's going to send them preachers of the gospel. He uses Jewish terms here to describe them. Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. But this is what you'll do to them. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues. And you will persecute them from city to city. That on you may come all The righteous blood, that's the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Sechariah, 
the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered, between the temple and the altar. And the Lord tells the disciples that this destruction that's coming on the land is going to be so complete that this wonderful and ornate house of God is going to be reduced to rubble. If you just carry on reading in chapter 24, remember these chapter divisions don't really exist in the original uh, Bible, in the original Greek language. Jesus went out from the temple. He departed. His disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said, do you not see all these things? Do you not see them in the light of what I've just said to you? Because assuredly I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. These are solemn words. But they don't really indicate the half of what was going to actually happen to this city. It's well documented that the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, just 40 years after Christ's crucifixion, was one of the most awful and cruel destructions of any city upon the earth. When the Lord first wept over Jerusalem, he he wept over it twice. But uh, when he first wept over it, he described in more detail what would happen. He said to them, the days are coming, he says, when And he's addressing Jerusalem, again weeping over her. The days are coming upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side. Now, this is the dreaded siege. You know, when when a city was sieged, especially a city like Jerusalem that had so much difficulty with a water supply, people were soon driven mad with hunger and thirst. There were known cases of cannibalism in the city, during the siege that the Romans placed upon it. But when the siege was over, they will level you, Christ said, and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not know the time of your visitation. And as I said, that took place Forty years after Christ's death, in A.D. 70, when the Romans destroyed the city and the temple. And that, of course, led to the Jewish dispersion that we know now, to the far corners of the earth. Although Jews did remain in Jerusalem, and there has been a continuous presence of Jews in the Holy Land ever since, but the vast bulk of them were either killed or dispersed. And the two great losses for them were first their nation. They lost nationhood after having been a nation for so long, for over a thousand years. And as well as losing nationhood, they lost their place of worship. And I don't just mean by that their ordinary synagogues from week to week, but the great temple of God which stood in the midst of the city. Their guarantee, as they saw it, of the Lord's presence and blessing with them forevermore. Why did that happen? Well, of course, because of sin. And not just the, if I can call them ordinary sins, because it seems awful to call any sins ordinary, but not just the 
ordinary sins, but the special sin of rejecting the Saviour. And in fact, it's not even right to say that it was the special sin of rejecting the Saviour that took all this wrath upon them, because um, the Lord himself goes further than that. It's the fact that they rejected the message of mercy that came afterwards. In other words, they they didn't just reject the Lord and his ministry, but they then rejected the apostles and their ministry. And of course, that is a fearful thing to do. It's far worse to sin in the first place. Um, It's far worse than sinning in the first place to refuse the mercy and the grace that's offered to you subsequently. The fact is that, as Jesus said, he sent wise men and scribes. He, He sent the apostles. He sent preachers of the gospel to say, well, you did this. I sent my son to you. You took him and you crucified him. He was the object of your contempt and the object of your malice and your hatred. And you took him, and with wicked hands you slew him. But here, the gospel is first addressed to you. Although you don't deserve to hear it, why should you hear it? If you were to hear it, maybe you should hear it last of all peoples of the earth. But in God's providence, you who took him and crucified him, you receive this gospel message first. And Peter on the day of Pentecost preaches to the Jews. And all the apostles preach to the Jews. And there are some who are converted. There is no doubt about that. There's a significant number converted. But the vast majority turn round in opposition. Stephen is stoned. As Jesus said, there's a persecution that breaks out. A persecution that follows them from city to city. So that the Lord's people have to flee here and they have to flee there. Because they still don't want this man to rule over them. The Christ they rejected in the crucifixion is now the Christ they are rejecting as he is preached to them in the gospel. And so their guilt is twofold. Of course our our guilt always increases. The more stubborn we are, the more disobedient we are. Our guilt increases in the sight of God. Well, so did their guilt. And in 70 years' time, in 40 years' time, sorry, in AD 70, there would be destruction. I want you to notice the number 40. The number 40 has a symbolic significance in the scriptures. 40-year wandering in, um, in the desert. The 40 years that Elijah was wandering too. You have the 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension. Other examples too. The 40 years is always connected with a time of probation, a time of testing. It's always connected with that. And what the Lord is saying here is that this generation that lives, 40 years was the Jewish span for a generation. So there is a generation of gospel preaching to give you an opportunity to change and to repent. But the Lord says that when that 40 years is finished, this is what is going to happen. And how does he know that that is what's going to happen? Well, because he does, because of who he is. He knows that they will hear the gospel, and he knows that they will reject it. And of course, God knows the same thing regarding ourselves today. We, We have our own opportunity We have our own probation time. We don't know how long that's going to be. 
But we will either use that time well and embrace the Lord and follow the gospel, or else we will just abuse her privileges and reject the gospel, with the fearful consequences that follow that. Because our guilt accumulates just like the guilt of Jerusalem accumulated down through the years as she killed the martyrs and stoned the prophets, our guilt accumulates too. Your guilt accumulates if you are rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ and progressively going your own way. And that is the judgment of God, a a pent-up wrath that falls upon the city. The blood of Sechariah, the son of Berechiah, is actually the blood of the prophet of whom we've been reading, who must have been the last prophet killed prior to the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. But you know, awful as that judgment is in terms of uh, the killings and the crucifixions and the torturings that the Romans afflicted on the Jewish people, the greatest judgment of all is the first part of the verse in our text, where Christ says that in verse 38, your house, he says, is left to you desolate. Your house is left desolate. What's the house? And what does it mean for the house to be desolate? Well, first of all, the house. The house that he's referring to there is the house in which he himself is speaking. It is the temple of God in Jerusalem. God's house, God's temple. Beautiful building. Beautiful in its first building. Beautiful also in its second. And even at this time, Herod has been over 46 years uh, beautifying this building. Extending it, making it more glorious, making it more ornate. And when the Lord uses this expression, this house is desolate, the disciples obviously take it to heart. And on the way out of the temple, they turned to him and said, look at these buildings, how, how wonderful they are. And this is the house of God. This, this is the temple of God. And Christ said, not one stone here, he said, shall be left on top of the other. That's as desolate as it could be. Desolate doesn't just mean empty. Desolate means forsaken. And what really makes this temple forsaken is that the glory of God leaves it. And the glory of God leaves it when he steps out of it for the last time, which is what he does at this particular point. When he says, your house is left to you desolate, he is just about to step outside of it for the last time. That's the desolation of the temple, when the Lord Jesus Christ turns his back on it. It's an interesting thing that the second temple, when it was rebuilt um, by the Jews, didn't have the Shekinah glory of God in it. What it had was a special promise that the Messiah himself would come to the temple, that he would be the glory of God, and he would fill the temple with his glory. That was fulfilled uh, in its beginnings anyway on the first visit of the Lord as the Messiah to the temple. You'll remember how he took the whip and he cracked it and he scourged out the money changers and he overthrew their tables and he put out the animals that were being bought and sold and he spoke in anger to the people and he said, this house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. That's what it it was, this house. 
That's what it was meant to be, a house of prayer and worship for all the nations. And here in the court of the Gentiles, you just buy and sell and you've turned it into a den of thieves. Now this was the glory of God visiting the temple. This is the glory of God purging the temple. This is the one who was himself God visiting his own temple, purging it and cleansing it. But after three years, they are effectively saying, go. We don't want your restoration of worship. We don't want your idea of purity. We don't want your idea of holiness. And the Lord Jesus Christ turns round and he walks away and he says that your house is left to you desolate. I want you to notice the detail that's easy to pass over, but so important that he calls it your house. He never called it that before. It was always uh, my father's house or God's house. Your house, he says, because that's all it is. This building may have all the trappings of everything that it was, but it's just yours. It's not God's anymore. How they hated hearing these things. People's pride doesn't take to that kind of thing. You know, people still speak about our church and our church building. I wonder if they ever think that that's maybe all it is. That it's just your church and it's just your church building. And it's just you who glories in it because God doesn't. The real issue is, is this God's place? Is, is God in this place of worship? Does he honor it with his presence? And sometimes when God leaves, in fact, usually when God leaves, maybe always when God leaves, it's a phased withdrawal. It's a phased withdrawal. First of all, his presence will be there, but it will be there in a reproving way, in a disapproving way. He'll be calling the church to repentance, and he may be threatening that church to leave. That's the message that, that he's going to, threatening the church with leaving himself. Maybe that's the message that he's got, the message that he gave to the church in Ephesus long ago. You have left your first love, he said, and he called them to repent and to do the first works before he removed the lampstand from its place. In other words, one moment it is a visible church of God, but the next moment it ceases to be that. So its existence would be a mere shell. But would you have really known the difference on the following Sabbath to the Sabbath before that lampstand was removed? Well, that would depend. That would depend. Would you really know? Because the second stage in the withdrawal is when he actually leaves. And who notices when God leaves the building? You know, people mistake lots of things for God's presence. Sometimes people mistake a silence for God's presence, as though if everything is absolutely quiet, God is there. It's far more common nowadays, actually, for people to mistake a noise for God's presence. If there is a buzz in the place, and if everybody looks happy and they're smiling and what have you, but God's here. Silence and noise don't indicate the presence of God. Dear me, there's far more to the presence of God than that. Far, far more to the presence of God than that. 
You hear it so often in prayers up and down the land. We thank you that you're here today. Is he? Who knows? Who knows? That's a question. Who does know whether he was here and whether he was not? Can we tell tonight that the Spirit of the Lord is present in this ordinance? Is he present in our praise? Is he present in our prayers? Is he present in the preaching of the word? Is he present in the hearing of the word? Surely if he is, there will be tokens of that in our hearts and in our minds. Our minds being opened and our hearts being enlarged. And conviction of sin, a spirit of joy or gladness or a spirit of sorrow for sin. These things that indicate the movement of the presence of God in our midst. Not noise or stillness. Now according to the prophets, this desolation that was coming upon Jerusalem and the temple was going to last a long time. And it will involve a long-standing loss of nationhood for years. As Luke tells us in chapter 21, Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So for, as we'll see in a moment, for many years, Jerusalem will be under Gentile control until the Lord brings his people back. Because there is such a thing as a fulfillment of Gentile times, which we'll see in a minute. But once that is fulfilled, the Lord's ancient people will come back to their ancient city. But there is a loss of national and political sovereignty. And they have lost that. They lost it nearly for the last 2,000 years. The other thing that they lose with their national sovereignty was a loss of priority status in God's plan of redemption. Because there's no doubt that they had that. Special privileges and opportunities and callings were given to the Jewish people to be God's missionaries in a lost world. They were favoured with so many blessings. To them was committed the priesthood, the oracles of God, the true method of worship, the way of sacrifice. All these things were to be communicated to the world around. But with the crucifixion, And the rejection of the gospel, they lost that. As Jesus said in Matthew 21, the kingdom of God, he says, now listen to this. And he's talking to the Jewish people. He says, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and it will be given to a nation bringing forth the fruits of it. The kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to another nation bringing forth the fruits of it. And how long is this grim situation going to last? Well, Hosea tells us in his prophecy. Let me just read this to you very briefly. Hosea chapter 3, verse 4. The children of Israel, now listen carefully, shall abide many days without a king or a prince. No national government. Without a sacrifice or a sacred pillar. 
no sacrifices, without an ephod or a teraphim, no priesthood. Afterwards, the children of Israel shall return, and they will seek the Lord their God and David their king. Notice David again, not the dead one, the living one. And they shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Now, the verse is so important, I just want to read it again. The children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, government, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, worship, without ephod or teraphim, a priesthood. They'll have no sign or trace of these things. But afterwards they will return and seek the Lord their God and they will seek David their king. And that situation will prevail until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. When's that? Well, that is simply the time when God decides to return his ancient people back to their land and when he calls them back into his kingdom. The church isn't engrafted onto them, but they are engrafted back into the New Testament church. So the end of the times of the Gentiles, when the Gentiles have the preeminence, I mean, you can think of the last 2,000 years as a time when the work of God has been predominantly amongst the Gentile peoples. That is just a fact. And, And the Jewish people have not had a large part to play at all in the purpose of God. There's just been a remnant always according to the election of grace, as Paul says. That's changing. That will be marked out, that change, by an unexpected return to the land and by a glorious conversion of the people. Now, that unexpected return to the land, well, you know when that took place. It began in 1948, effectively, maybe before that, but then statehood came along with it and millions have returned. Is it around about 8 million people that have returned to the land? Ezekiel tells us that they would return. Paul, of course, tells us a mystery. The mystery was that blindness would remain on part of Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles would come in. Then, he says, the Deliverer will come and he will turn away ungodliness and all Israel shall be saved. No longer a part blind and a part veiled, but the veil taken off their eyes and they will see. Those are the latter days of which Hosea spoke in that verse that I mentioned. In the latter days they shall seek David their king. Now, these days for the Jewish people would be long and difficult. And you know how long and difficult they've been. Uh, Many an unbiased historian has wondered how this people have survived. How they've survived so many dispersions, so much contempt, so much abuse. Um, They just have a tiny little strip of land. I mean, you you look at it on the map, just look at it uh, and look at the vast tracts 
of land that are all around it, that most of whom are in absolute hostility towards it, some of whom have it as foundations for living to obliterate them off the face of the earth. Still they stand, and amazingly, they are still there, and still there where the prophets said they would be. They've returned to where the prophets said they would be, that is, in Jerusalem itself. Now, God will use all these difficulties um, at the hands of the Gentiles to bring them to repentance. And in fairness, God just won't use the difficulties that the Gentiles have put them through, and there have been plenty of those. I remember when we did, I'll never forget an outreach that we did when I was a minister in Toronto, because we were in a Jewish uh, community, uh, a, a very Jewish community. And um, we, did an, we did an outreach, and it, it was quite remarkable to go from, from door to door amongst these people. And once they discovered who you were, the door was pretty much effectively shut in your face. Because if you introduced yourself at all as a Christian or gave any kind of idea that you were a Christian, you were associated with uh, the Holocaust, you were associated with the Christian nation of Germany at the time, which put them through what they were put through, and, of course, the various abuses that they received at the hands of nominal or so-called Christians down through the year. True Christians would not participate in that, but those who wore the name of Christ nonetheless did, and that's how they saw it. And I think that's how many of them still see it today, bad dealings. But God tells us that when a change comes, that, that, that many Gentiles will be responsible for that. Paul tells us that amazingly, just as the Jewish... Um, just as the Jews were responsible in a way for, for, for bringing the truth to us, so, so we will be responsible for bringing it to them. And he does that. We do that because we still love them, he says, for their father's sake. Did you notice that in the passage we read in the Romans? He says, they are our enemies, he says, for the gospel's sake. They're opposed to us because they're opposed to the gospel. But he says, they are beloved for their father's sake. Beloved by whom? By God. He hasn't forgotten them. Why? Because he says the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. Did you notice that? In other words, when, when God chose to bless this people, he will bless them. And he will ensure that the final leg of their journey on this earth is a leg of immeasurable blessing. He will ensure that that's the case because the gift and calling of God is without repentance. The calling of Israel uh, as an elect people will come to its fruition. Just as your calling as a Christian will come to its fruition, you, you may have your time. Perhaps when you fall away or backslide or something to that effect. But as we saw in the morning, God sees to it that his people come home because the gift and the calling of God on your life as a Christian is irrevocable. It's irrevocable. Well, so this is true for them. We love them for their father's sake. Do you? Did Paul? Paul didn't suffer at the hands of the Gentiles what he suffered from the Jews. There's no doubt about that. I mean, if you want to know who really hurt Paul and who really gave Paul grief, then you would have to say that it was the Jews. But how does he feel about them? 
How does he feel about them? Well, he says, my heart's desire for Israel and prayer to God is that they may be saved. He says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. He says, I'm not lying. The Holy Spirit bears me witness, he says, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Now, this is a person who's basically full of joy. But he can say that he has great sorrow and continual grief in my heart because, he says, I could wish, strange expression in the Greek, which means that he's not wishing it, but if he could wish it, he would. I could wish that I myself were accursed or separated from Christ for my brethren's sake, my countrymen according to the flesh, to whom belonged the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the law and the service of God and the promises, from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. How about that for loving your brethren? How about that for loving your family? For loving those who are your people according to the flesh? The intensity of that. Friends, I I wish I had that intensity for yourselves. That intensity. Could I honestly say that I could wish I could, he says, if such a thing were possible, and it is not, but I could wish that I were accursed from Christ if you could have that blessing, if you could have that love for your unconverted brother or sister or your unconverted neighbor, if you could have that love for a lost person in here tonight, the intensity of it, even though all they seemed to do to him was to beat him up, and to throw him out of wherever they found him. Love and grace that amazingly conquers so much hatred. But when the Gentiles bring the gospel to the Jews, as many have perseveringly done it over 2,000 years, one day, I tell you a mystery, Paul says, things will change. Because they will look again at the one whom they pierced. And they will mourn. They'll mourn. As one mourns for an only child. And they'll recognize that the blood that they were instrumental in shedding is a blood that can cleanse them from their sins. And that his blood will be upon them and upon their children. Not in a bad way of judgment anymore but in a good way of blessing. And one by one, their synagogues in the Holy Land will be converted into churches as they turn to the Lord and recognize their Messiah. Now, Christ here says in our text that sometime after Jerusalem turns to the Lord, he will return himself. Now, you all know, I'm sure you know, I hope you know that our Lord Jesus Christ is returning to this world. He's returning. And when he returns and returns to Jerusalem, he will find a city that welcomes him when he returns. And the welcome that he gets is in the form of these words in our text. Verse 36, I say to you, he says, that you won't see me again. You'll see me no more until you say, until you learn to say, and until you sing this psalm, blessed is he who comes. In the name of the Lord. Do you recognize these words? We sing them at every communion. We've sung them quite often recently. They're from Psalm 118. Always sung at the Passover. 
And they were just sung a few days before Christ said these words. I mean, you'll remember that occasion when he rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. That was a great claim to messianic status. On, on, the, on the animal of peace, he rode into the city of peace, not on a war horse, but on a, an animal of peace. And there were many who recognized him. See, the, the reason this psalm was always sung at Passover time was because the Jews believed that the Messiah would come at Passover time. And they knew that Psalm 118 was actually a reference to the Messiah. They knew that. And when they started to sing it as Christ was riding into Jerusalem, it was a popular, by popular I mean on the part of the common people, it was their understanding. And they were giving expression to their understanding that this was the one who was coming in the name of the Lord to renew the nation and to be a means of blessing to the world. Now, they were the more spiritual people. Oh, there were spiritual people then too. They knew and they understood. There may have been others caught up in the enthusiasm. That's the way these things go. When there's, a, when there's anything good, there are people caught up. When there's something bad, there are people caught up in that too. But there were spiritual people who recognized the identity of the one who was on the back of the donkey. Blessed is he who comes to us in the name of the Lord. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God, the hope of Israel, and the glory of the Gentiles too. But as he made his way into the city, that changed. The city wasn't interested. The rulers weren't interested. The authorities weren't interested. They quickly manipulated the rest. Those who were quick to recognize him were those who had embraced the gospel in the rural areas mainly. In the city, the city that should have welcomed her own king, the city of peace, the king of righteousness coming in. No, she didn't recognize him. Crucify him. Crucify him. We will not have this man to reign over us. That's the fundamental statement that sin makes. It's the fundamental statement that your own sinful heart makes tonight if you're not a Christian, that you will not have this man to reign over you. And they took him, yes. And they crucified him, yes. But the Lord says, I'll return, he says. And when I return, it'll be a different reception. Because this whole city, he says, will welcome me in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, in the light of all that, let me just close with this. Like I said in the beginning, Israel is in the news and Jerusalem is in the news. What should your attitude be to what happens what should your prayer be? Well, you recognize, first of all, that Jerusalem will remain. Other cities, like Babylon, like Nineveh, they're under the dust. If you had been alive when they were prospering, you would think they would never pass away, these cities. They've passed away. This one doesn't. Won't. It's here to stay. It's a heavy stone. No one will shift it. 
What's more, you need to recognize that the Lord will turn this city to himself. He'll turn this city into a believing city, recognizing David, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll recognize, too, that this city and the Jewish people will be instrumental in bringing renewed life back to the whole world. See, when the times of the Gentiles are finished, uh, the Jews are called in as a means of blessing again to the world, which they actually will be this time, because God will see to that. And so, even though they are our enemies because of the gospel, we must love them for their father's sake. That means we love them, we witness to them if we have the opportunity, and we pray for them. You know, our larger catechism, and I'm closing with this really, more or less anyway, uh, our larger catechism asks, what do we pray for in the second petition of the Lord's Prayer? In the second petition, which is thy kingdom come, so we pray that in our prayers, thy kingdom come, we acknowledge ourselves and all mankind to be by nature under the dominion of sin and Satan. That's his kingdom. We pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed, that the gospel be propagated throughout the whole world, the fullness of the Gentiles brought in as a distinct people group, and the Jews called. That is part of the prayer that we pray. I really want to close by emphasizing something to you very personally, at least the way Christ addresses us. When Christ sees a Jerusalem rejecting himself, he weeps. I want you to notice that, that he weeps. And he weeps over a desolation that he sees spreading out over 2,000 years. He weeps over that. How often, he says, would I have gathered you as a, as a hen would gather her chickens under her wings, but you would not. You wouldn't. Now, if the Lord were here tonight, would he weep over yourself? Has he sent you messengers, opportunities, sermons, people to witness in your life, from your parents to Sabbath school teachers to people who have just loved you because they were concerned for your soul? Would the Lord weep over you because he sees what's ahead of you? The prophetic clock is ticking. There's no doubt about that, but your life is ticking too. And the door of opportunity will close. Now is the day of salvation. You are to repent, to change, and believe the gospel. Let us pray. <clears throat> o Lord, our God, be merciful to us, and bless us in thy grace, and uh, cause thou to shine upon us the brightness of of thy face. Do us good that we may do others good. And uh, we pray that you would bless the gospel in our midst and to the ends of the earth. Such good news, and yet we refuse to hear it or to respond to it. Have mercy on our souls. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We'll close by singing the Again, a psalm that we sing often at communion.
reminding us of the glorious kingdom of Christ. In Psalm 72, the last three stanzas, his name forever shall endure, last like the sun it shall. Men shall be blessed in him, that's in David, our Messiah, and blessed all nations shall him call. Now blessed be the Lord our God, the God of Israel, for he alone doth wondrous works in glory that excel. And blessed be his glorious name to all eternity, the whole earth, let his glory fill. Amen. So let it be. Let's stand to sing the last three stanzas.